0: Greetings and welcome to the Animal Wellness Podcast, the official podcast of Animal Wellness Action. Hi, I'm your host, Joseph Grove. On this show, we talk about animals and the people who care about them and have the ability to improve their lives by influencing culture and supporting pro-animal laws and regulations. To stay up to date with all of our news and information, subscribe to this podcast, receive our free newsletters and more, visit animalwellnessaction.org. Normally, I'm joined by Wayne Pacelli and Marty Irby, but Wayne is off today. The Great Clips in Wayne's neighborhood recently reopened and and he's there for his fourth haircut. So we're we're happy for you on that, Wayne. Good job. Uh, Wayne was recently notified that Grecian Formula actually has anti-COVID-19 properties. The man is safe. He will never get COVID-19. On the serious side, though, we do have Marty. Marty is the executive director of Animal Wellness Action and its chief lobbyist in DC. So we're thrilled uh, to have him as well. Uh, Joining us in Wayne's Place for a conversation about all things Kentucky and the implications on the national political landscape is Catherine Callahan. She is an attorney co-founder and first chair of the Animal Law Group for the Kentucky Bar, and former Kentucky State Director for the Humane Society of the United States. So we've got, as always, a very informed panel of people to talk. Excited to have them here. As i alluded to we're going to talk about the state of kentucky until a couple of years ago kentucky was in its 11th year at the bottom of state rankings when it comes to animal welfare as compiled by the animal legal defense fund we remain 50th out of 50 states when it comes to child welfare Uh, we have more cases reported the laws are as hindering or more hindering than anywhere else when it comes to taking care of our children and our animals We aren't doing very well, in other words. But a lot of people are putting hard work onto both fronts. Catherine Callahan, I knew when she was um, in her role at the Humane Society of the United States. Marty Irby and I go way back, and in fact, uh, Catherine introduced us. We'll talk about that. Uh, But these people have their hearts, their brains, their muscles squared against the efforts to make Kentucky and as part of the nation, the nation as a whole, a better place for those who need the support, the mentoring, the protections uh, that um, they work so hard to to bring about. So uh, Marty, uh, thank you for being here. You are very familiar with the state of Tennessee. A lot of your work goes back there. You're very involved in the Horse Racing Integrity Act. Uh, You were a former uh, staff member for Congressman Ed Whitfield from Kentucky. Uh, Let me start off by asking you, what is it about this beautiful state that makes it so difficult to get things done, not only for children, but the focus of this podcast, animals? Why are we so far behind? Well,
1: thanks Joe, it's great to be here with you and Katherine today and thanks Katherine
0: for joining us.
1: You know, I think from the time that I've spent in Kentucky and worked for Congressman Whitfield representing 750,000 people in the western uh first district of Kentucky, which is about a third of the state, I learned that it's pretty much like many of the other states in the southeast. I grew up in Alabama and lived there for many years and then lived in Tennessee. Louisiana, Mississippi are a little the same. And it's really just that I think um, those areas have not over time been necessarily exposed to as much of the rest of the world that uh, other states in the U.S. have. Florida is a little different. It's not really considered like the southeast to a lot of people. Um, There are a lot of international travelers that go there but um, I, I feel like Kentucky is at least headed in the right direction. I know when Catherine and I and you talked several years ago about the ban on bestiality in the state, Kentucky was like one of five states that had not uh, passed a ban on that. And we worked really hard and Catherine uh, got that through the state legislature and signed into law. And that was some progress and, and hopefully we're on the right track. Um, I know the the delegation in Kentucky has been a bit challenging in Congress for us, but uh, we have had some help. from Andy Barr uh, on the Horse Racing Integrity Act, most recently James Comer, who was a former Ag Commissioner, co-sponsored the Horse Racing Integrity Act. And then of course, Senator McConnell has been helpful with us on the Bear Protection Act and a few other issues. And and John Yarmuth, well, he's a stellar member of Congress. I mean, he's always been terrific on our issues and and we think the world of him as well. But I think you're headed in the right direction, Joe.
0: Yeah, good. Thank you. And, and Catherine, when we finally passed the bestiality bill uh, and had it signed into law a year or so ago, we moved up from 50th out of 50 to 48th uh, or 47th. 47. 47. 47. Mm-hmm. So we're number 47 with a bullet. And it kind of just makes me wonder what in the heck has to go on in those other three states. You know, I guess there's some of the ones where bestiality is still not, criminalized, incredibly uh, so. People, when I used to tell them that that was legal in the state of Kentucky, I mean, they wouldn't believe it. I mean, they just could not believe that a state in this day and age would not have criminalized something like that. Uh, Specifically, you're working on, or we're working on, others are working on now, uh, a measure that would allow veterinarians to report suspected animal abuse in the the state. Is is that correct? Is it still potential license losing uh, for a veterinarian to report animal abuse in the state?
2: No, actually, the, uh, the state legislature passed that bill last session. So we are looking forward to it becoming effective in July. It will allow veterinarians to report to law enforcement when it comes to companion animals into to the uh, State Vets Office of the Agricultural Department for any other livestock. Um, it's unfortunate because it doesn't really provide immunity as we had originally hoped and the way the, the um, bill had originally been drafted. But it does at least allow veterinarians to report without having to worry about losing their licenses for breach of confidentiality.
0: What kind of immunity would be involved? What's the peril beyond the losing of one's license for reporting?
2: There's so many other states provide civil and criminal immunity, um, and sometimes even very specifically immunity for administrative um, prosecution of any kind. Uh, This would prevent people who own animals who then are reported from turning around and suing the veterinarians who report them. And that does provide um, a measure, a cushion, as you'd say, for these veterinarians to do their jobs and not be worried that something was gonna come back and bite them.
0: All right, so let me go back up a few thousand feet and ask you the same question that I asked Marty. Why is it so difficult in Kentucky, at least it seems to have been so, to get things done on behalf of animals?
2: Oh, well, there's some easy answers to that and some difficult answers. The easy answers are that there are a number of opposition groups, specifically Kentucky Farm Bureau, uh, Kentucky Houndsman Association, or the Even though now they seem to be less of a problem than they have been in the past. Uh, There's also the hunting groups who fear that any little movement that's progressive will hurt them in the long run. And so they will oftentimes fight almost any other kind of legislation. There's sometimes even um, you find some uh, other groups that may be on the periphery of these issues that they just simply do not want change. But I think that those are the ones that are most specifically we need to watch for regarding any past legislation and also going forward into the next legislative session.
0: So let's talk about Kentucky Farm Bureau for a minute, because when I mentioned uh, to some folks and, and continue to mention that one of the greatest opponents to progress relative to animal welfare is Kentucky Farm Bureau, their eyebrows go up immediately. The insurance company, why in the world would they have anything to say about animal welfare?
2: Well, they deal with farmers and farmers are very worried that somebody is going to tell them that they can't do what they want to do with their animals. So we had lobbyists representing Kentucky Farm Bureau that are there and they will then fight any piece of legislation. I think that there is some movement that I've seen during my tenure as state director for HSUS, that as long as you start developing a certain level of trust with some legislators who in turn can be having conversations with lobbyists there. You start making some progress. Now, they may not like everything that's in a proposed bill, the same way with the animal sexual assault bill. There was a provision in there that they didn't like, and it was taken out because it did not affect the overall use of that bill as a law. In the veterinary bill, which went from a malgaturing immunity bill to just a veterinary reporting bill, they did not want the immunity. And so, therefore, that was taken out. And that ultimately is what passed. So while there is some ongoing negotiations, Marty and I know because he and I went to the Kentucky Farm Bureau headquarters and had a conversation with a group there. It was very chilly in that room, I have to say, but ultimately it, we did prevail by having a really top not, notch bill passed. Uh, and that's what we really need in this state. We need effective legislation.
0: Yeah. So a couple of the instances I'm aware of relative to, I guess, what you would describe the slippery slope phobia you alluded to. If we give them an inch, they'll want to take a mile. Uh, When you were championing the anti-animal sex bill, I seem to recall there were concerns among dairy farmers, for example, that even things like the artificial insemination of cows would fall under it and that would threaten their livelihood. I believe it's also the case that when it came to the hot car bill legislation that would give immunity to individuals to let hot dogs out of cars, that the houndsmen were afraid that that would be used to liberate their hunting dogs. Uh, Am I right on those? Is that the kind of slippery slope fear you alluded to?
2: Yes, Uh, I can also say that some of the excuses that have been used I would dub these days as delusional because nobody in their right mind would think that some of these things would be applied that way. Um, As an attorney, I can tell you, having talked to so many prosecutors, nobody wants to prosecute something unless it is clear in the law that they're going to have possibly win those cases. So by bringing in these, what I would call, uh, pieces of uh, evidence out from the outside and apply them as if there is going to be some strange result uh, based on the law as it's written, uh, I think is an argument that other legislators may be into, but it is not going to be used that way. So I think their arguments are truly delusional.
0: Right. So Marty, let me go back to you because one of the battles being waged that certainly is near and dear to the heart of horse-loving Kentuckians, which also has national ramifications, is the effort to have passed the horse racing integrity act we continue to follow churchill downs news because they've just announced the churchill downs corporation officials have that attendees will be permitted for the race when it occurs uh, in autumn 2020 Uh, so the race is coming we're gearing up for fans uh, what's going on with horse racing and what can horse loving fans expect to have happened by the race?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question, Joe. You know, I probably spend more of my time on the horse racing issue than any other one single issue, at least in 2019 and 2020, that's been the case, and testified before Congress and supported the legislation in January. And what we're seeing is a lot of people that we would have probably never thought we would have gotten on board coming into the fold. With the 27 indictments back at the first part of March in American horse racing, that really created a lot of momentum for us. Um, Bob Baffert, who's the silver haired guy everyone sees on television and is known for having won the triple crown twice in the past uh, only person in the past 40 years uh, that's trained a horse that's won uh, that title um came forward and publicly supported the legislation and that really um, kind of swung the floodgates open for any trainer to easily support the bill um, that had any uh you know uh, thoughts that um would have kept them from doing that before He, he really freed everybody up to do that we also have seen the jockeys guild which represent the jockeys who ride the horses come on in support of the legislation Uh, As I mentioned early on, even James Comer, uh, Republican from Kentucky uh, in the U.S. House of Representatives, co-sponsored the bill recently. So we have a lot of momentum. I believe that we will get that bill passed through the House and the Senate and signed into law. This Congress, I think, of any piece of legislation that we're working on that we feel confident that'll be the case. It'll be the Horse Racing Integrity Act. Um, The Jockey Club, which is the thoroughbred breed registry, has done a tremendous job in really advocating for the passage of this legislation and brought other people on board within the horse racing industry. And I I think a lot of them are really scared, those in the racing industry, because after these investigations and indictments occurred, then um, we saw the Washington Post, I think it was the Friday, right uh, when COVID-19 hit, the Washington Post editorial board came out with an editorial that basically said horse racing should no longer exist in the US and that really made people pay attention. I know there are members of Congress who really checked up with that, people in the industry. And so we feel really good about things. We still have some difficulties to overcome with Churchill Downs. They've been the silent observer on this issue for quite some time, but I am encouraged because the Kentucky Racing Commission passed a regulation recently that required that horses running as two-year-olds in 2020 uh, begin running without Lasix, which is the primary drug we've been trying to eliminate in horse racing. And so for the first time in many years, the 2021 Kentucky Derby will be run Lasix-free, and you will not see a horse on Lasix running in the main Derby race. uh, that aside, I think 2020 uh, uh, 20 has been an interesting year because of COVID-19. Uh, in some ways, that has helped the sport because no other sports were playing. And uh, while it may not have been in the best interest of the horses, in my opinion, it has elevated the racing industry a little uh, to the, at least the betting public that's out there that wanted something to watch while all of this was going on during COVID-19. So, Anyway, I say all of that to just let you know it's much higher on the radar with Congress and with the American people right now than it has been in a long time. And we believe we can eliminate the drugs in this industry and save hundreds or thousands of horses' lives each year when we do.
0: Yeah, it's a little bit of a silver lining to the COVID cloud. Do you have confidence in enforcement, Marty? A lot of times that's the issue, isn't it? We pass laws and then making sure that the doctors the inspectors the veterinarians i mean and the inspectors do the follow-up work to make sure these horses do go out onto the track LASIKs free
1: yeah i i do have confidence and i would say primarily because the horse racing integrity act doesn't place enforcement in the hands of the federal government it gives usada which is the u.s anti-doping agency that caught lance armstrong oversees the olympic testing and many other sports, the ability to do that, to punish people, it also gives them the ability to do what we call out of competition testing, where they can just randomly show up at a horse, uh, at, a, at an owner's farm or trainer's farm, and they could test that horse's blood that day. And um, that's, that's going to be something that's going to have everybody uh, really uh, at their A game on being drug free on a daily basis, not even just on race day because of that. So I have a lot of confidence in USADA. I think the industry has a lot of confidence in USADA. Uh, The Congress has a lot of confidence in USADA. If we were talking about the USDA, I would probably tell you that I had zero confidence because um, that's been the case with USDA and soaring of Tennessee walking horses and so many other aspects of animal agriculture.
0: Catherine, Marty just alluded to the Senate, House of Representatives, Right now in Kentucky, we are in the middle of a of a fascinating uh, senatorial campaign for the general coming up in in November. And of course, the reason that is such an interesting race to watch is because it focuses on arguably the second most powerful person in the United States right now and that is our senator, the uh, Senate majority leader Mitch McConnell. As you look at this race, what do animals have to gain, what do animals have to lose should either Senator McConnell lose the race or should uh, the uh, Republicans lose the Senate majority? What's in it for our animals?
2: Mitch McConnell has a number of bills sitting on his desk that are not moving in the Senate, and he is keeping them from moving in the Senate. One of those bills is the PAST Act, It was passed in the house by overwhelming majority and is still sitting on his desk that would do away with soaring as we know it among Tennessee walking horses and other types of walking horses. And it is still sitting there. We have as a group of animal advocates agreed that we have to get rid of this. We have to get rid of soaring uh, in the industry. Uh, The Tennessee walking horse industry is going down the tubes and a lot of it has to do with the fact that the that nationally, it is known for soaring. Marty knows this very well. um, And he has been fighting this good fight for a long time. We even had the Louisville Metro Council pass a resolution that asked the congressional delegation from Kentucky to pass that bill. It did pass in the House. It is still not passed in the Senate. We have to get it done. And as long as Mitch McConnell is in office that bill will not pass. I am convinced that it will not pass. The same way with a number of other bills that will not pass. I don't know where we are. Marty can probably talk about this on the SAFE Act about closing the borders for horses leaving the United States to go to slaughterhouses in Canada and Mexico. That is significant in Kentucky because we are the horse capital of the world. We need to have something done to prevent all the horses that are bred and not used in this state from being slaughtered for meat. It is not within our best interest to have that continue. Eventually it's gonna come back and hurt us because we're gonna be looking at these animals as being completely disposable. As far as the election goes, there's something trending on Twitter that's hashtag all eyes on Kentucky and it needs to be on Kentucky in order for Amy McGrath to prevail against Mitch McConnell. They're going to need a lot of money. He has a huge war chest and so money is going to have to come in nationally to be able to defeat him. My fingers are crossed because I hope for this state that they will eventually have somebody in the Senate. And that includes down the line when Paul Rand comes up for uh, elections um, that they will be able to be defeated and have new voices in the Senate.
0: Fascinating. Marty, any thoughts on the election generally? It's on everyone's minds for a lot of reasons right now. Uh, the drama coming out of Washington, it's, every day there's uh, just a, an amazing new headline. I mean, stuff you couldn't write. If you were going to write a, po- a political novel, yeah. a lot of what's happening you would just dismiss as over-the-top facetious.
1: Well, I think election day is going to primarily be determined by, um, honestly, where the stock market is on that day. If the stock market's high and people are are bringing in a lot of money or rolling in the dough, I think the Republicans are likely to do well. I think if the stock market's down and everyone's scared of COVID-19, then the Democrats will do well. I think one thing that I find interesting is You know, in the last election cycle, I worked for Ed Whitfield and and was down in Kentucky during that Senate race, and um, Allison Lundergan-Grimes was running against Mitch McConnell, and I believe at the time that was the most expensive senatorial race in American history, and McConnell was, of course, campaigning on the platform that he would be the majority leader and and bring uh, so many things back to Kentucky uh, if he was to win and get that position, And a lot of people thought that Allison Lundgren-Grimes, you know, had a good chance at beating him. And then he just clobbered her in the end. I mean, it was a huge margin of victory for him. And in this instance, Amy McGrath has run before. She couldn't win in Lexington. She couldn't defeat Andy Barr in a house seat. So why would anyone think that she could defeat Mitch McConnell, uh, arguably, as you said, the second most powerful individual in the country statewide when she couldn't win her own hometown.
0: Marty, too. another thing uh, that, you know, we're animal experts. We're not political experts necessarily. That's not why we're on this show, at least. Uh, But it is fascinating to discuss because the implications are so germane to our heart's interest in recording the show and everything else we do for animals. And that is this, uh, that the stock market is going to be the arbiter uh, of a lot of votes. I don't know that that's going to be the case this year. I perceive, correct me if you believe I'm wrong, that people are beginning to understand the disconnect between the height of a stock market and the value of our day-to-day lives. When we look at the number of billionaires and how many more billions they've accumulated during this COVID crisis, while so many other people up to half of working homes now have someone unemployed owing to the virus, yeah, it's coming back as states reopen, but look what's happening there, closing again. I don't know that the stock market carries the clout that it did maybe four years ago.
1: Well, you know, you may be right. I, I think there are more people that seem to be aware of, uh, you know, the workings of Wall Street than there have been in the past. Um, I say that primarily because that was Trump's big thing, was the stock market. And, you know, so he's going to be at the top of the ticket and if someone goes in and likely most people pull one lever and vote all republican or all democrat i think the top of the ticket could determine a lot in this election cycle Um, but hopefully people are learning to think more for themselves uh, in our modern day society and um, i'm encouraged to hear you say that
2: yeah you know if i just may add one thing here as well is that in the state of kentucky though it, it really does come down to Republican versus Democrat. And you will have numerous people out in the state. And remember, this is primarily a rural state. So when you have people who are willing to just vote a party line, that's the thing that will get Mitch McConnell reelected. But I think in the golden circle, I mean the golden triangle, which is what is the Louisville, Lexington, Covington area, which has a number of, is a primary urban area, that's when those voters can make a change. If they're behind a single candidate, that will, will be enough of a clout to get that candidate elected.
0: So, so here's my prediction. I think Mitch McConnell wins the state by his closest margin yet, but I believe he'll be unemployed as Senate majority leader because we'll lose enough Senate seats, or the GOP will lose enough Senate seats, that he will be minority leader. That's my prediction.
2: And you may be right.
0: I don't know. I may be crazy, but Catherine, as Billy Joel said, it just may be a lunatic you're looking for.
2: <laughs> I like that. That, that, yes. that yes. sounds
1: like, uh, Joe, you're, you're probably uh, reading the tea leaves right. I believe, you know, with what we see um, in these purple battleground states like Arizona with Martha McSally, who's a Republican that's a vegan and the best Republican in the U.S. Senate at easily for animals, and Susan Collins in Maine, who's probably the second best Republican for animals in the U.S. Senate. They're both in real trouble. Now, there are other uh, senators like Cory Gardner, who has done very little on the animal front. He's in trouble, too. But I think um, at the very least that you'll likely see the Democrats take control of the Senate. And I was just curious, um, switching gears a little bit, what you guys uh, had to say about the new governor, Andy Beshear. And I, I knew his father, Steve Bashir, but just kind of curious on the animal front where he is and and regulatory policy wise where he stands, and thought you know uh, he's a fresh face and a, and a new person in that spot um, and and Matt Bevin was really no friend to animals, so um, just curious what you guys thought about him:
2: yeah. Well, I spoke to Andy Bashir a couple of times uh, when he was running for office. And at that time, we were talking about the animal sexual assault bill, and he was absolutely in favor of that bill. I do think that his administration needs to be educated on the issues regarding animal um, he needs to be educated about the issues on animal advocacy because, as we all know, and people who are listening to this podcast probably know is that there is a direct link between animal cruelty and human cruelty, Uh, human abuse and animal abuse. I don't know if enough legislators, enough elected politicians understand that. And I think that Bashir needs to have in his administration, somebody who can educate him about that. If indeed he is, he will start seeing that all the criminal uh, legislation that's being proposed also needs to be looked at in terms of animal advocacy, because we know if you reduce some of the uh, animal crimes uh, in this state, and we have many of them, uh, it also will be tied into possibly reducing, as Joe was talking about, things such as child abuse. It is all linked together, and if we start having the politicians being elected to office that have some influence who understand that, we might be able to get more laws passed. Then of course, we also then have to deal with law enforcement having that knowledge and prosecutors having that knowledge. Because we find out we will have people who commit crimes that may not be charged effectively and also then may not be prosecuted effectively. And until that happens and we develop some law, including court cases, uh, our state will not progress the way it should. But I do think that Andy Bashir has some potential for being an animal advocate. Only time is gonna tell because he's new. I think he's done a great job with COVID and the state. Uh, He has been a strong leader on that. I'm hoping that he may also be a strong leader regarding animal issues.
0: What a fascinating administration he is Is often running with, I mean, to take office uh, in January and then immediately be hit with the COVID-19 crisis and then the unrest in his largest metropolitan area, Louisville. Holy cow it kind of reminds me of what um, uh, Bush 43 had to endure coming into office and then right away confronting 9/11 it's you know the whatever you think of him politically that's a tough set of challenges governor Bashir has had to face right out of the gate so uh, I, I hope that animals uh, get high/ on his list of priorities. And then indeed he gets the education and the mentoring uh, you perceive would be helpful to him. Let's segue over to Louisville because something is a foot, or I guess I should say a hoof. (laughs) That's a gratuitous question there, there, Catherine, (laughs) uh, regarding uh, horse carriage rides in the city. I think Chicago recently passed a city ordinance, and it's enacted that uh, carriage rides, horse-drawn carriages are no longer allowed to operate. Uh, The same thing may be happening in Louisville. Marty, uh, what do you know about that?
1: Well, I know that, um, you know, Chicago was really a big step, and we're trying to build on that momentum. I know, Joe, you and I have talked about potentially hopefully getting the city council to introduce Uh, legislation to ban carriage uh, horses or horse-drawn carriages in Louisville. Cincinnati, Ohio, just over the river from you guys, is going to be pushing a similar measure. I know they already have a sponsor there and are pretty close to some language. And um, people are just uh, not tolerating this abuse that we see in major cities where horses are just pouring sweat, have little water running across asphalt all day. And at the end of the day, um, breathing fumes from a tailpipe of whatever school bus or automobile it's behind. So um, I'm encouraged that Chicago really paved the way, um, and hopefully we'll see that with your great help in uh, Louisville.
0: Catherine, one of the things, unfortunately, the state is known for is hosting. Cockfights. In fact, our former governor, uh, Matt Bevin, uh, attended one. Uh, what's going on with cockfighting in the state? And then, Marty, you can tell us what's going on with animal wellness action because I know you have a lot going on there as well. Catherine, uh, cockfighting in Kentucky.
2: That, that's a big issue in this state. Unfortunately, it's something that's so entrenched. Uh, we're seeing some movement among people who may even have attended cockfights as children as a family event. Uh, deciding now, it is no longer something that should be tolerated. I don't know if there's enough of a groundswell to make changes with their legislators for this. As a matter of fact, I was on a call with a uh, state senator um, who was suggesting there was no. This was not the right time to deal with cockfighting legislatively. There is not enough of a groundswell yet for that. So I think we've got a lot of work in this state yet. I actually have said that I'm willing to come out of retirement if we could have something to fight cockfighting in this state. Unfortunately, in some locations in Kentucky, uh, it is a moneymaker for people. Um, They they have no jobs available. Uh, And so if they've been doing this for a long time, they look at it as an opportunity to make 10,000 or more dollars. Uh, And that may be something that's all they have in that community to survive on for winter. Um, So I know that there has to be a lot of education throughout the state. Uh, It needs to be exposed as something that is violent and feeds into the very things I talked about earlier regarding uh, domestic violence. Uh, If you have cockfighting going on and you then take your children to those cockfights, you're going to end up exposing children who will then think that violence is okay. Uh, I think we need to be looking at this from a, a law enforcement perspective, uh, and that's why we need to have greater t- greater training with our state police and also our local law enforcement. So I look forward to eventually having cockfighting being a felony, both uh, from the state and also uh, fel- uh, federal government legislation.
0: So right now it's just a misdemeanor in the state of Kentucky.
2: Yes, and it is not even stated expressly in the Misdemeanor Cruelty Statute. There was some movement to make that change in the Misdemeanor Cruelty Statute, so it lists cockfighting. But, you know, I don't see that happening anytime soon unless we can develop a groundswell in the State for it.
0: Right. Uh, Marty, I want to go to you on cockfighting in a moment, but a follow up question for Catherine. This dovetails with some of your earlier remarks regarding getting animal cruelty laws on the books. Do you often see that the charges related to animal abuse are pegged on to increase the number or the severity of charges against criminals who were brought in for other matters? Or would the opposite be more likely to be the case that the individuals are charged with the animal violations foremost? Uh, you know, is this something that we use to throw the book at someone, or is it actually bringing in perpetrators?
2: If we have a law that makes it clear that something is illegal, such as cockfighting, or for that matter, any other type of animal crime, then when you have law enforcement go in, or social workers go in to do an inspection regarding a complaint under those laws, then they will look for other things. So you will have an animal, for example, that is Extremely emaciated, or chickens that are kept because they are used for cockfighting. And uh, animal control officers or law enforcement go in to inspect those animals. They will look around because they're on the property. If it's available, you'll see whether or not you have a woman who has a black eye, a child that looks like it may have had a broken arm, um, some other things if they're uh, maybe even not fed properly. All of those things can be brought in. So not only then would you have charges against the people for cruelty to animals, you would also be able to bring in charges against the person for um, Domestic violence, neglect. And those are the things that strike a chord with the public and for legislators, because it is a human crime then And if we have an understanding of what animal cruelty is in relation to human crime. And we actually get more
0: action. All right, thank you, Catherine. Uh, Marty, why don't you take us out by sharing with us what Animal Wellness Action is up to regarding cockfighting, the territories, the states?
1: Yeah, Joe. You know, back in 2018, in the farm bill, President Trump signed into law the Parity and Animal Cruelty Enforcement or PACE Act, which outlawed animal fighting, cockfighting, dogfighting in the U.S. territories, and. So our good friend, Wayne Paselli, um, after we passed that law, um, really began working on a campaign to uh, enforce the law. And he went to Guam, actually went to a cockfight, and uh, ended up connecting with the postmaster in Guam who gave him all of these shipping records of birds that had been brought in from the United States and where they came from, where they originated. And with no broiler industry, no egg industry in Guam, Um, It's very clear that these are all cockfighting roosters. So we have taken those records and done investigations in both Oklahoma, where our national law enforcement chair and former Attorney General Drew Edmondson is, and then my home state of Alabama, and been very successful in uh, bringing to light these cockfighters who are very blatantly and openly shipping birds, talking about it on YouTube, uh easily could be clearing as much as three million dollars a year and kentucky is up there at the top of the list we haven't completed that investigation yet but um, from what i've seen so far i would say kentucky's at least in the top six or seven states in the u.s uh, shipping cockfighting birds to Guam and other u.s territories so you're going to see a lot from us in the upcoming month or two on cockfighting in Kentucky and exposing these people publicly. And I do hope that the law enforcement there in the state cracks down on this issue.
2: I received a phone call some time ago from a man who complained that he couldn't get anything done because he couldn't sit outside on his house on a porch in his house because he heard tons of birds uh, in the neighboring property going all the time. He said that there were probably 300 uh, roosters Located in a building nearby and it was such a din that it disrupted his daily life. Uh, He tried to get something done with law enforcement. Nothing happened. He tried to talk to the people who had that property and those birds. This was an area that had a truck coming in periodically removing birds and then bringing other birds in Um, But he kept complaining. Nothing was ever done. It did appear in the newspaper. I don't know what the status is now, but these are the sort of things that we're dealing with on a regular basis. Uh, you can also understand that when we had a case, a big, gigantic cockfighting pit in Eastern Kentucky known as Big Blue. At that time, it had been operating for a long time. I think that they were making $100,000 or more per event. Uh, it had to be prosecuted by the Assistant Senior Attorney General for Virginia. Uh, three years undercover, three years of the court case, before finally it was shut down. The owners had to pay a huge fine, then they also had to pay to have Big Blue dismantled, and they served time. These are the sort of prosecutions that need to take place in our state in order to deal with cocktail effectively, because you shut down one, another pit's gonna open up, and it has to be across the state. So I'm looking forward to something happening, Marty, with your investigation, to see that something can be done in my state as well.
0: All right, excellent. Catherine, thank you. That's, uh, that's a strong statement with which to conclude the podcast. Perfect. So glad you were here. Um, I admire you so much and enjoyed our time working together. Uh, Marty, you're awesome as always, and, and thank you for, for being on with us today, and we'll be uh, glad to have uh, Wayne back next episode. Uh, just because he adds just as much as as you do and it's always great to hear him as well. And I want to say thank you for our listeners and uh, for their listening to the Animal Wellness podcast. Be sure to visit animalwellnessaction.org for all of our news and information and to sign up for our news alerts. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter and we invite you to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. Podbean, Stitcher, or Spotify. I'm your host, Joseph Grove, and we'll be back soon with another episode of the Animal Wellness Podcast.